people have struggled with legalism ever since the beginning. Uh, this is kind of what it looks like, right? Uh, God has his people, those whom he has saved, and he gives them laws and instructions. And he says, as those whom I have saved, go and live like this, right? That's God's plan. But the legalists just reverse that. And they say, if you want to be saved, then go and do all these things. You see the difference there, right? And this has been a problem ever since the beginning, but I want you to understand something. Legalism is the easy way out. And you might be thinking, well, hold on a second, Pastor. Uh, It's not real easy to keep all those laws. That's That's pretty difficult. And that's true. That's true. But it's also much harder to deal with the human heart, isn't it? It's easy to address and try to clean up behavior. It's a whole lot harder to actually take care of the human heart. Uh, It's kind of like every year in the summer, I don't know why we still do this, but I have two really big gardens. One day I'm going to learn to just go to the store. It's easier that way. But (laughs) I have these two huge gardens during the summer, and there are these really pesky weeds that annoy me to death every summer. They're these little, I mean, flimsy things that just break through the surface. And I always think, this is going to be real easy. I'll just go right through the garden, I'll pluck it out, and it'll be no problem. The problem is, these particular weeds have these ridiculously deep and strong and prickly, unnecessarily so, prickly roots. And so when I go through and I'm weeding my garden, I pull at that weed, and what do you think happens? I get the flimsy part, right? And I've got a decision to make at that point. I can either just ignore it and wait until that weed pops up again, and we'll just go through the whole thing again till the end of time. Or I can do the hard work, and sometimes painful work, of getting in there and digging out the root and getting rid of it. I want you to see that's a picture of legalism. Legalism always goes after the behavior, which is nothing more than the flimsy weed that breaks through the surface. And people will always address that because it's easy to just deal with the behavior. But I want you to understand our hearts are the roots that give rise to all the sins we see in our world and in our lives. And that's the part that we avoid because it's hard, and let's be honest, it's sometimes really painful to try to deal with heart issues, isn't it? And I want you to to see this morning that we have to take care of the root in order to properly deal with the fruit. You see, Christianity does not start with your behavior and your ethics and your external conduct. Christianity starts with the heart. It starts with the question, what is the state of my heart? And we have to understand that, otherwise we're going to completely misread the Beatitudes. Because many people turn the Beatitudes into a legalist way of salvation. They read them and they say, okay, if I go and do these things, then I will be blessed. If I can just make myself poor in spirit, if I can just make myself mourn, if I can just make myself merciful, if I go and do these things, then I will be saved and I'll be blessed. But I want you to see, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. Here's the point. The Beatitudes are not a list of things we must do in order to be blessed. They're a description of the one who is blessed. That's the key difference there. Jesus is not saying, go and do these things if you want to be saved. Go and do these things in order to receive my blessing. He is describing the person who is already blessed in the eyes of God. And so then we need to ask the important question, something for us to consider together this morning. 
Well then, who is actually blessed according to God? Who's blessed according to God? What does it actually look like to be someone that God considers blessed? I want you to notice how it starts there in verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, Seeing the crowds, he, being Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Is Jesus saying that you have to be a poor person in order to inherit the kingdom of God? Like, if you make a certain income, sorry, you're out. You're, you're disqualified. Is that, is that what he's saying here? Or is he referring to someone who's just maybe down and kind of mopey all the time? Do you have to be that person, like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? If, if you're that person, then the kingdom is yours, right? Well, no, that's not what he's saying here. Uh, actually, that phrase, poor in spirit, it refers to being empty. It, it refers to an emptying of yourself. It has to do with our attitude towards ourselves. So, so the question is, well, how do we think about ourselves? Who do you think you are in your own eyes? Who do you think you are in the eyes of God? I mean, because some people think they're really something, right? Like some people, they think, you know what? If I were to join the kingdom of God, it would be greatly benefited because I would be there. <laughs> My presence alone would make the kingdom something. God you would be getting a good one out of me. I know all these other sinners and slackers and everybody, you might begrudgingly send them an invitation, but you want me on your team because I will truly add something to you and your kingdom. That is me. Well, that's the opposite of what it means to be poor in spirit. The, the Bible is saying here that kind of a person has no place in the kingdom of God because I want you to understand something, church. You can't be filled with the spirit of God if you're already full of yourself. That's why Jesus says, blessed is the poor in spirit, the one who is empty, the one who recognizes that he has nothing he can offer God, the one who says that if he is to be saved, it must be by God and God's grace alone. He understands that there is nothing about himself or in and of himself to possibly recommend himself to God. He can't say, God, I can offer you this and I can show you this. I've got this going for me. The person who's poor in spirit sings with the old hymn and says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. He knows that he has nothing to offer God. He is empty. It's a picture kind of of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, one of my favorite parables. Remember how that one goes? Jesus said, two men go to the temple to pray. One of them a Pharisee, a great religious person. The other a tax collector, looked down on by pretty much everybody. And the Pharisee's opening his arms wide and looking to heaven, and he goes, God, I thank you that I'm so awesome, right? <laughs> I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, Cowboys fans, all these people, you know. I do this. I do that. I tithe this much. I go to church this regularly. I do all these great things. God, I thank you that I'm so much better than everybody else. That was his prayer. But the tax collector, the Bible tells us, couldn't even look his eyes to heaven but beat his chest and cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a man who's poor in spirit, 
who recognizes that he has nothing he can offer God. You will never see yourself as poor in spirit until you experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because please understand something, folks. The natural man does not want anything to do with God. The the person who is poor in spirit thinks little of God or little of himself and much of God. But that's the opposite of the natural man, right? The person who is still in his sins, he thinks much of himself and little of God. And listen, that's not going to change until the Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction in that person's life. So in other words, this can't be legalistic. You cannot make yourself poor in spirit because until God intervenes and works in your life, you will continue to think that you're something when in reality you are nothing before a holy God. You see, it happens through hearing the word of God and beholding the holiness and the glory of God, understanding the gospel of the Son of God, experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God so that we might recognize our sinfulness before God. That's the process that has to take place. And so Jesus is saying here, those who are blessed are those who think little of themselves and much of God. And the Beatitudes have an interesting progression. They they kind of form this picture of salvation. You start off with the natural man and he begins to experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to begin to see this process of salvation. So notice how it continues in verse 4. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. And I want you to see how this builds directly on the previous beatitude. So notice what happens. A person first experiences the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They become aware of the sin in their lives. And they start to think little of themselves and much of God. But let me ask you something, church. What happens when you open up the Word of God and you realize how holy and pure and glorious God is? And how sinful you are. It causes you to mourn, doesn't it? You see how far you are from God. You see that infinite chasm. You realize that there's nothing you can do to bridge it of yourself. You see your sinfulness and the extent of your sinfulness. And you hate it and you mourn. You say, God, why am I like this? I don't want to be like this. I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to struggle with this particular sin anymore. God, I don't want to be like this. You see your sin, you hate your sin, and you mourn over your sin. It's like Paul cried out in Romans 7.24 when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's Paul saying, I am entirely helpless and hopeless with regard to my sin." I have no ability to overcome sin on my own. I have no ability to defeat sin on my own. Listen to me. I have no ability to be done with sin on my own. I cannot deliver myself from sin. And the weight of that helplessness and that hopelessness should cause us to mourn because of our sin. That's what Jesus means here when he says, Blessed are those who mourn. Conviction has to precede conversion. A person will never turn from their sins and turn to faith in Christ until they see their need for Christ. And unfortunately for our world, most people think they have absolutely no need of Christ. They have not seen their sin. They have not hated their sin. And they have not mourned over their sin. But Jesus says, we're blessed 
when our hatred of sin moves us to the point of mourning over it. And then notice how it continues in verse 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is a pretty misunderstood beatitude because uh, we, underst- we misunderstand meekness in our day, right? Like we think of meekness and we often think of weakness. But uh, as one of my uh, favorite uh, musicians, he has got a line in one of his songs that says, if you think being meek is weak, then just try being meek for a week. <laughs> well, that was a pretty good spin on words. He could have been a preacher, but <laughs> it's good. You know, we think meekness that way, right? We think it describes a weak person, maybe someone who's soft-spoken and humble and gentle and quiet and always agreeable. And that's just not primarily what this word meek means here. It includes those things, to be sure. But the word meek here goes far beyond that. It refers to having a true and honest view of yourself and expressing that view in relation to others. So pretty much this is how it works, right? Having realized how great my sin is and the extent of my sin and having been crushed by the reality of my sin to the point of mourning over it, I now know who I truly am before God. I have a true view of myself. I am a depraved sinner in desperate need of the mercy and the grace of God. That is who I am. That is having a true view of yourself. And if you know that about yourself, then it's going to be evident in your interactions with others, isn't it? It means you're not going to pretend to be anyone other than who you really are. It means that you're not going to act as though you're better than others because you know that you're not. But for the grace of God, you would be just like them. We're no better than anyone else. We are sinners in need of God's mercy and grace. In fact, listen to me, you can't even truly insult a truly meek person. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers of all time, said it like this. He said, don't be offended when others insult you, for you're far worse than they think you to be. (laughs) You got to love Spurgeon, right? Don't be offended when others insult you because you're far worse than they think you to be. Well, that's the motto of the truly meek person. The truly meek person says, you cannot tell me anything about myself that I don't already know and hate about myself. Any insult you can throw at me, I already know it and I hate it. God help me. I'm in need of his mercy and grace. They might say, well, you're arrogant. You don't think I know that? I'm waiting on God to humble me and it's going to hurt, but I need it. They might say, well, you're too impatient. I know. God help me. He's still working on me. Praise the Lord. Sanctification is a process, right, church? That we're not done yet. Well, you're given to anger. I know, but I don't want to be. I hate that I'm this way. They say the church is full of hypocrites. True. Anybody in here denying that? No. We don't pretend to be a museum of saints. This is a hospital for sinners. We're a bunch of broken people who were desperately relying on the mercy and grace of God to get us through. You see, we know our sin and we hate our sin. We're not trying to hide that fact. We say, I don't want to be this way. I'm fully aware of the sin in my life and I hate it. And I can't even be offended by the insults of the world, the flesh, or the devil. Because no matter what the devil says about me, listen, I can tell him ten more things he doesn't know about me. He doesn't know all things. He's not God. I can't be offended. I know who I truly am. So biblical meekness is having an honest, true view of yourself. And I want you to see how these beatitudes go together. Do you see how the first three fit together? They're they're forming this point. I want you to note it here. 
Blessedness begins with barrenness. That's what Jesus is getting at with these first three. Blessedness begins with barrenness. It means that those who are truly blessed are those who see their desperate need for God. They see that they are empty and nothing before God because of their sin. And they recognize their utter dependence on God to fill them up and make them something. Listen to me, church. Unless our cry is that of the tax collector and we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We have missed the point of the gospel entirely. Because nobody makes it into heaven on their own merit. Nobody is good enough to earn it. No one is adding anything to God's kingdom because of the great life that they've lived before they joined it. That's not the case. The gospel says that sinful man is nothing before a holy God. And until we get that point, we have not even reached the first rung of salvation. And when we realize that, we need to remember that our response in that moment should not be one of self-determination and self-righteousness. We should not see the reality of our sin and go, okay, here's my plan. I've got it moving forward. I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to put my nose to the grind. I'm going to work my fingers to the bone. And I'm just not going to sin anymore. I'm going to earn my righteousness. I'm going to be the holiest person on earth. Listen, that is the siren call of legalism calling to us in our desperate estate. Our response when we see our great sin must be to realize that we are nothing before God. That we are empty before Him. That we are in desperate need for Him to fill us up. To have an honest view of ourselves, and then look to God alone for our rescue. And that's actually how Jesus continues the Beatitudes. I want you to notice verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Now this is the turning point of the Beatitudes. And it speaks of a desire, a longing, a need for satisfaction. And he uses words like hunger and thirst, which are primal instincts, right? I mean, if you're in desperate need to survive, a person needs something to eat or drink, they'll do almost anything to get those, right? To to have that desire fulfilled. And in the same way that a person cannot live without food and water, the Bible is saying here, no person can live before a holy God apart from righteousness. That is what we actually need to be able to stand before God and live before God. And yet, righteousness typically doesn't even make the list of the top 100 things that we hunger and thirst for, does it? It's like our world has spiritual rabies. Uh, Here's one of the interesting things about rabies. Fun fact, if a person or animal has rabies, they develop a fear of water, which is crazy because it's like one of the most essential things you need to survive and they avoid it at all costs. Is that not exactly what our world does with righteousness? It is the one thing they need to be able to stand before God and live before God and yet they avoid it entirely. They show no interest in it at all. In fact, what our world does is they take righteousness and they substitute every single vice under the sun in the place of righteousness, hoping that it'll bring them ultimate and lasting satisfaction. And I want you to see here that that's a fruitless effort. Because the Bible says here that it is only a hunger and a thirst for righteousness 
that's going to be satisfying. Everything else is like drinking salt water. You know, if you were stranded out in the ocean on a raft and you got thirsty, I know that everybody in here knows you're not supposed to drink the ocean water. But how many of us are going to drink the ocean water, right? Like probably at least once. You think, okay, what's the big deal? What's the worst that can happen? It's liquid. It's got to help it all. And so you're, you're out there thirsting to death. You take a little sip of that water. Is it going to quench your thirst? No. It's only going to make it worse, right? And I want you to see that in the same way, whenever we remove righteousness and put anything in its place, what we're doing is actually just drinking salt water. It's only going to worsen our hunger and our thirst and our desire for satisfaction. And people do this all the time. For many people, what they do is they get rid of righteousness and in its place, they put a relationship, right? And they think, if I can just find the right person, If I can just be with someone, if I could just get married and have a family, if I could just find that one person, then I will be truly happy. Then I will be satisfied. For other people, it's money, right? They remove righteousness and they put money and they think, well, if I could just have this salary, well, then life would be great. If I could just save up this much money, then I wouldn't have to worry about anything else. If I could just have this much money to my name, then I would be truly satisfied. That's all I need is a little bit of money. And listen, the list goes on and on. For others, it's sex, it could be comfort, it could be luxury, fame, career, acceptance. And these things become the things that we give ourselves to, hoping desperately that they will bring us the satisfaction that we long for. And listen, I just want to tell you, that's nothing more than salt water. It will not satisfy you. It can't satisfy you. Oh, let me say, if that describes you this morning and if that is you in your situation in life right now, if you're one of these who is substituting anything else in the place of righteousness, thinking and banking on the fact that it will ultimately satisfy you, I just want to tell you, you're drinking salt water. It will only worsen and deepen your desire for satisfaction and leave you thirstier than you began. But here's the good news, right, church? God recognizes that desire that we all have. He recognizes that we all long to be satisfied. And Jesus says here, I'll do it. I will bring you satisfaction. But it will not come through money or fame or career or sex or relationship. If you will hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you'll be satisfied. You see, it's describing a person who recognizes their own spiritual poverty and their helplessness before God, and they cry out and they say, God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that you require perfect righteousness, but God, I can't do it. No matter how hard I try, I will never be truly righteous. I want to be, but I can't be. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. You see, that's what this Beatitude's getting at. Blessedness is finding our ultimate satisfaction in God alone. Unless you are satisfied by God alone, you will never be satisfied by anything else in this life. You might think, well, I'll, I'll, you know, add God into my life and then maybe find satisfaction elsewhere. You must be satisfied with God and God alone. It's describing people who depend on God to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. 
The blessed person here understands that nothing they do could ever earn their spot in heaven. It could never merit God's salvation, could never make up for or atone for their sins. The blessed person here says, God, you could let me live a thousand lifetimes and I still would not be able to live up to your standards or earn your salvation. They say, I need you, Lord. I need you to come and do it for me because I cannot do it for myself. So they turn to God alone. You see, this is what happens. A person, when they recognize this, they recognize their need for righteousness, but they have no ability, they turn from their sins. And they put all their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And what happens in that moment is they receive the righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ God declares them to be righteous in his sight. And so they finally have the righteousness they need, the righteousness that they long for, and they are satisfied. They've been converted, and they stand right in the eyes of God. And everything changes after that, doesn't it, church? You're never the same after that moment, are you? The Bible says you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You begin to live a totally different life. And that's, that's what the Beatitudes are getting at here, right? First comes conviction, then comes conversion, and then finally comes conformity. Whereby you begin to look more and more like Jesus in your life. Slow process, not immediate. <laughs> going to take, not even, it won't even be in this lifetime where we'll be perfect. It's going to be in the lifetime to come. But it is a process and you begin to live more and more like Jesus and your life begins to live, uh, be transformed. Notice what Jesus says in verses 7 through 9. This is that transformed life that comes from being a Christian. Notice what he says. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And these are pretty straightforward, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to see what Jesus is saying here, but, but the key to understanding them is to understand that none of these things that are listed here are possible apart from the mercy and grace of God, apart from the work of God in your life. So in other words, when you see about merciful there, the reason that we're able to be merciful is why, church? Because we've received mercy from God. If God had not shown us mercy first, we wouldn't be able to show mercy to anyone else. And mercy is just simply not giving someone what they deserve. And on that point, everybody in this room this morning should be thankful that God did not give us what we deserve. Amen? Because what we deserve is wrath and judgment and condemnation and hell for our sins against God. And yet what we've received is mercy from God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says in John 1.16, from His fullness we all have received grace upon grace. And the word upon there means in the place of. It's like Indiana Jones when he's removing that thing from the statue and he puts a bag in there real quick. Like so quick it never even notices a difference. That's, the, that's literally the word picture going on there in John 1.16. You're receiving grace and as soon as it's gone, more grace. And you're never a moment in your life without grace. So it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to eternity. That's what we've received from Jesus. Do you deserve that? No. 
Praise God he did not give us what we deserve. This is what we receive from Jesus. We deserve hell, but he offers us heaven. And so the question then is, if we have received this kind of mercy from God, how on earth can we possibly withhold it from others? And listen, I'm I'm not naive, right? I know that there are people here this morning who have legitimately been hurt and offended by others in their life and have had to endure some pretty terrible things in their life. And I know that they're harboring feelings of hatred and resentment. And everything within us this morning says they don't deserve my forgiveness. They don't deserve my love and my patience. They don't deserve it from me. I'm not going to fight you on that. Maybe they don't. But neither did we, did we? We didn't deserve the mercy that we received from God. And you might say, okay, but listen, pastor, you don't know what he did to me. You don't know what he put me through. You don't know what he said about me. You don't know what he has done to me in my life and my mental health. You have no idea. I don't. But did he crucify your one and only beloved son? Because that's what we did to God. And the Bible says, and yet while we were still enemies, while we were still sinners, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked, Christ Jesus died for us. If we had not received mercy from God, I understand we would never be able to give that mercy to others, but because we have received mercy from God, that actually enables us to be merciful towards others. And Jesus mentions the pure in heart, which seems like a pretty high standard, right? Anybody prepared to raise their hand and claim to be pure in heart this morning? Yeah, I didn't think so. Me either. I was just, that was an example. That's not me saying I'm pure in heart. That's a pretty high standard, right? So what does Jesus mean by being pure in heart? What pure just means unmixed, right? Like if you have a purebred dog, it just means it's unmixed with something. And so a pure heart is referring to an unmixed, undivided heart. These are hearts that have, an un, that have a pure, unmixed, unsullied love for Jesus. They are hearts that do not serve two masters. In other words, it looks like this. These are people who are not trying to please God and also the world. There are hearts that are not trying to be accepted by God and also accepted by the world. They're not seeking to live for God and his kingdom and also appease the political parties of our day. They are devoted to Christ and Christ alone. They have undivided hearts and live for the glory of God alone. And as a result of this conversion, the Bible says here that kingdom citizens are peacemakers. Now that's, that's interesting, is it not? Blessed are the peacemakers. Notice it does not say peacekeepers. That's something entirely. That's what we gravitate towards, right? That's a little bit easier. You see a fight going on, we want to try to keep peace. It's much harder to be a peacemaker. Being a peacemaker requires boldness and courage. And it requires understanding the the reason we do not have peace in this world. Because here's what happens, right? Like, we we see that the reason we don't have peace in this world is because of sin. And where does sin come from, church? Our hearts. That's where every sin comes from. It stems and comes forth from the human heart. And, And so what happens is biblical peacemakers don't waste time treating symptoms. We focus on curing diseases. 
And, and what I mean by that is when we look at our world, it's easy to see the effects of sin and, and the, the, the nature of sin and the symptoms of sin in our world, right? You look around, you see hatred. You see murder, you see racism, injustice, criticism, judgment, deception, vulgarity, cruelty. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's easy to spot sin in our world. Can we agree, church? And we hate that our world is plagued by these things. We want to see these things rid from our world. But our enemy would like nothing more than to keep us focused on the symptoms to distract us from treating the ultimate disease. He wants us focused on the flimsy weed that breaks through the surface so that we'll leave the root alone. Keep us focused on the rotting fruit so we ignore the deepening root. Because here's the reality. We see these things in our world and we could go and put band-aids on all of them. Is it going to get rid of sin in our world? Absolutely not. The reason these things exist in our world is because of the human heart. And so we have to address the heart That is the problem with our world. And until a person recognizes that their heart is the issue and they turn from their sins, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they receive new hearts, become citizens of the kingdom of God, sin's going to continue in our world. And so the problem is the human heart. What our world needs more than anything is not a bunch of band-aids. They need new hearts and there is only one person in all of creation who can give someone a new heart. And that's Jesus Christ. And so the way to be biblical peacemakers is to make peace between God and man as ambassadors for Christ. It means you have to have the boldness and the courage to go and actually open your mouth and proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. You have to be bold enough to tell them that they need to repent of their sins and turn to Christ for salvation. Until that happens, sin will continue to plague this world. That's why it's a lot harder to be a peacemaker than a peacekeeper. And that's how you take care of the root so that we can finally begin to see new fruit. And let me just tell you something. If you live this way, as a citizen of heaven in a world filled with sin, it will not be easy. Amen? Notice what Jesus says in these final verses, verses 10 through 12. He says, Blessed are those... Who were persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Very simply Jesus is saying. If you're going to do this. If you're going to choose to follow him. Do not expect it to be easy. It's going to be hard to be a follower of Christ in a world plagued by sin. The world does not want God's rule and reign. The world does not want to acknowledge their sin. The world does not want to put their sinful desires aside. The world doesn't want God's kingdom, and they do not want to live according to God's ways. And so when they see people who do, like the church, they are going to wage war against the church. You should not expect nice treatment. In fact, Jesus says here, you should expect this harsh treatment, this persecution, this reviling, the insulting, the mocking. I mean, why would we think we have it any better than Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus himself said, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, what do you think they're going to do to his followers? 
I mean, so if they crucified our Lord, why do you think they're going to come and hug us? It doesn't work that way if you're actually living for Christ. I want to tell you this morning that no Christian makes it to heaven unhated, unmocked, unpersecuted, and unreviled. It does not happen that way. And if you do make it to heaven that way, you have to ask yourself, did I really live for Christ? But the Bible says here, don't lose hope, Christian. Don't be discouraged because this is exactly how they treated the prophets who were before you. They mocked the prophets, they hated the prophets, they persecuted the prophets, but you know what they did? They kept on prophesying. They kept on preaching. They kept on loving. They kept on serving. They kept on devoting themselves to the mission of God no matter what it meant for their own personal lives. And I want to tell you this morning, that's what these last Beatitudes are about. Blessedness is dying to self and living for Christ. That sounds countercultural and counterintuitive. It is. Because our world tells us follow your heart, do what makes you happy, follow your dreams, live for yourself and your own pursuits, your own desires. And the Bible says you will not be blessed that way. Blessedness is dying to self and living for Christ alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best when he said, The call to follow Christ is a call to come and die. Die to yourself. Die to your old passions. Die to your self-interest. Die to your sins. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. You cannot live as a citizen of the kingdom of God while also living just like the rest of the world. And you cannot live a transformed life apart from the mercy and grace and power of God in your life. Because here's what's going to happen. Whenever someone wrongs you, you will not be able to show them mercy until you die to your insistence that they get what they deserve. Whenever you begin to see rampant sin in the world, you won't be able to get to the heart of the matter and boldly proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ unless you die to your desire to be liked and accepted by the world. And when persecution comes and mocking and scorn and rejection come, you will not be able to endure and rejoice and praise God unless you have died to yourself. And devoted yourself to living for Christ and his kingdom alone. This is what it means to be blessed in the eyes of God according to Jesus. So I would call on you this morning to search your hearts, George's Creek. Are you the Pharisee who thinks you're pretty good, pretty religious, and in your quiet prayers you're secretly praying, God, thank you that I'm not like them. Thank you that I'm better than them. Or are you the tax collector who recognizes that you are nothing before a holy God, that you are empty, you have nothing to offer him, and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Are you seeking satisfaction in anything other than the righteousness of God, whether it be relationships, sex, money, career, whatever, hoping and praying that it'll bring you ultimate satisfaction. Let me just remind you this morning, that's nothing but salt water. It cannot satisfy you. But hunger and thirst for his righteousness, and you will be satisfied. 
Are you prepared this morning to die to yourself and live for Christ alone? Are Christ and his kingdom worth the rejection and the scorn of this world to you? Because I think if we will focus on what Jesus is saying this morning, and we look to Christ alone, and we see the kingdom that he brings, we will see that even though it doesn't appear to be at first, this is a kingdom of blessing. And praise God that we've been invited to join it. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer.